Hey everyone, this is Kendall from the Recording Lounge podcast, and today on Recording Lounge, I'm going to be discussing some beliefs that I used to have, but have since changed my mind. Now, keep in mind, many of these beliefs have changed because of the evolution of the recording industry, the vast technological improvements in the digital domain over the last decade or two, and of course, I, like many of you, am always trying to learn new things every day, and sometimes just my opinions change on things. Some of these things are half-truths, or only true sometimes, but maybe I used to think of them as 100% true all the time. Some of these things are just factually incorrect, and I was mistaken. Others are just opinions about the process that are always subject to change, and you know, I might change my opinion tomorrow. My goal for this episode is not to criticize anybody's beliefs here or anybody's opinions about things, but my goal is to present some interesting problems or common debates or commonly held beliefs and get you thinking about them. I'm not here to convince you that I'm the last word on any of this stuff, but I am here to help clarify and educate on some of these commonly held beliefs that may not have much of a solid justification. It's a big list, so let's get started. Now, the first one that comes to mind is compressor attack time. This is something that a lot of people mistake. It's one of the most common mistakes that people make in terms of something that is just factually incorrect or a bad definition. When I first started, like many people, we believe this false definition that a compressor's attack time is something that is like something to the effect of the amount of time before the compressor starts compressing. And that is just factually incorrect. Okay. It's not a delay. It's not a pre-delay time. Okay. That's not what it is. It's something more along the lines of how long before the compressor reaches the amount of gain reduction set by the threshold and ratio. Okay. In some compressors, this is about max gain reduction, and in others, it's more like once it reaches at least 70% gain reduction, it just kind of depends. But attack time is about the curvature, how long it takes to compress, to do the compressing. I could also throw into this a similar myth about release time, which is that release time, you know, when the signal goes below the threshold, uh, that's when the compressor, that's how long it takes to get back to normal. And there's a very key aspect in that that is misinterpreted, which is that the signal has to go below the threshold uh, to release. And that's not true. The signal does not have to go below the threshold to release. It can release while still above the threshold. And that's a very key distinction because, you know, if you're compressing something a lot, the compressor will be bouncing. It's not just going to be attacking and holding there, right? It's going to be compressing, releasing, compressing, releasing. And it's because it's all based on the input level and how that relates to the threshold, right? It's the number of decibels that go over the threshold. So the compressor will act one way if it goes 3 dB over, and it will react another if it goes 10 dB over and 20 dB over. And when it is going from, say, 20 dB over to 10 it's releasing, even though it's still above that threshold, if that makes sense. So that's a very key distinction, but those are two compressor-related beliefs that many of us have, uh, and a lot of uh, manuals and old books and stuff that I feel like they used to have that in there, and that used to be their explanation, and it's just not true. 
If you want to learn more about this, go check out my YouTube videos on these topics about attack time myth and release time myth, uh, where I show visual examples of what is happening here and what's actually going on. And you can see it a little better than I can really describe it with words. Number two, new guitar strings are always the best choice. So I talked about this in a couple other episodes, but this is something I really used to believe. And in many cases, on many types of instruments, I still do believe, but not always when it comes to uh, certain types of sounds, acoustic guitar specifically. Uh, for example, I still love the sound of new strings on a bass. I, I don't really like the whole, like, use dead strings on bass, and, and a lot of bassists still do that. And... I just don't get it. I really don't. Um, to me, dead strings on a bass are incredibly dead and very hard to get any sort of upper harmonic content out of, which makes them very hard to hear on small speakers. It makes them sound crappy if you try to distort them. You know, it, it just doesn't work. I think a lot of times when people are wanting to hear a deader, more vintage sound on bass, what they actually want is to use a set of flatwound strings. That doesn't mean an old set of flatwound strings. It means just a set of flatwound strings. I mean, there are so many ways to make something darker or fatter or thuddier with, with you know, your tone knob, your DI, your amp, the way you play. I just don't like the way for bass of using old strings. It just never sounds good to me, to be honest. To this day, I still, I still hate the sound of old strings on a bass. Um, now, electric guitar, I'm about 70-30. I, I generally like new strings on electric guitar, but there are certain situations, like with certain hollow bodies or certain types of guitar sounds where the old strings sound really cool and they give it a real thuddy kind of dark kind of just it's not even necessarily warmer per se but it's like a shorter sustain kind of plunky sound and for certain types of things that can be really cool on acoustic guitar from being honest about 40 60 the other way meaning 60 percent of the time i do prefer deader strings now not like super dead not like rusty and you know completely shot but i like strings that are uh, just a little bit less rich on acoustic guitar, usually when we're talking about strumming. If we're talking about finger picking, it can kind of go either way. I, I don't mind the new strings at nearly as much when we're talking about finger picking. Um, but when it comes to strumming, I just feel like brand new strings are just too bright, too rich, too full of harmonic content in the mids and upper mids. And it just takes up too much room. I mean, it just ends up sounding way too harsh. Now, again, keep in mind, I'm talking solely about recording, not about live, not about, you know, what's functional for someone who plays at their church or plays gigs or whatever. I mean, obviously, like uh, if you put elixir strings on your acoustic because you gig with it all the time and don't want to change them every day, it's like, I, I get that. But just realize that in the studio, when we put up a mic, kind of all bets are off with that. And we might need to change the strings to something um, a little bit less rich and complex. Some of my favorite strings for this on acoustic guitar, I love the Martin Monell retro strings. I love the Diodario flat tops. These strings kind of sound a little bit dead out of the box and within, you know, an hour or so of playing, they're about perfect for recording. So they're not technically that old. They're just made to sound a little bit 
less rich, less new and shiny sounding, uh, and they break in really quickly. And then from there, you know, once they get so old that they're getting gunk on them or they, you know, are hard to play, they're rusty, then you got to change them. But I, I used to think that, you know, brand new strings make for the for a good, correct acoustic guitar sound. And it's just not really true. Number three, tube gear is good and solid state gear is not as good. So this is a common belief, I think, held by guitar players, and I'm a guitar player, and it's because in the guitar world, generally speaking, the good stuff, like good, you know, guitar amps, they're tube. But when it comes to things like pedals, I mean, tube pedals aren't that popular, mostly because they're kind of impractical, you need a lot of voltage to supply a tube with power, they're at your feet, they're more fragile, you know, it's it doesn't make a lot of sense to use tube pedals. And when it comes to the pro audio world, sometimes we think like, oh, tube mics, like that's where it's at. Like that's what all the best vocals are. And, you know, you think about, but then think about like the Neve 1073. It's like, that's not a tube piece of gear. Um, a Shure SM57 is not a tube piece of gear. A Royer 121, uh, a U87. These aren't tube pieces of gear and yet they sound great. So Again, be coming from that guitar world, I used to think like, well, the tube stuff is the really good stuff. Like solid state, it's fine, whatever. But like tube stuff is really where it's at. And I have learned, um, I'm sure like many of you have learned, that in the pro audio world, that that's just not quite as applicable. Some of our favorite, most beloved pieces of outboard gear are solid state, and there's nothing wrong with it whatsoever. The truth is, tubes are electrical components, okay? You can have good circuits with tubes. You can have bad circuits with tubes. Just because it has a tube does not mean it sounds good. It also doesn't mean that the tube is doing what you think it's doing, okay? They have tubes out there, like I think it's called an OB2. All that tube really does is regulate voltage. So it's not even in the audio path. Right? Like a tube is just a component. It doesn't necessarily mean that it's being used for the amplification or for the compression or for whatever. Like a good example of this is the LA2. Okay. An LA2A is a compressor we all know. It's really popular. And people are like, oh, it's a tube compressor. It's a tube compressor. Well, kind of. It's an optical compressor with a tube makeup amp. The tubes aren't really doing anything in terms of the compression itself. Yes, they do add a character, but they're mostly in the output, the makeup gain amplifier. Like an LA3 is basically the same exact thing except with a solid state makeup amplifier. Do they sound different? Yes. But like the tubes are not the magic of an LA2 or an, I mean, that's not what's actually doing the compression. That's a photocell. That's a solid state unit. You know what I mean? And now, if you want to talk about like a, a Veramu compressor, like a Fairchild, those tubes are actually doing the gain reduction with a Veramu style circuit. That's a different conversation. But yeah, it's like people will get so obsessed with tubes and tubes and tubes. And, and really, I mean, I love tubes. I love tube guitar amps. I prefer them vastly over solid state. I think they still sound better than modeling, as we have discussed. But that doesn't mean that because it is a tube amp, it will sound good, okay? Like, a, a really good modeler will sound better than a crappy tube amp. You know what I mean? Like, it's just a component. That's the thing you got to take away from this is that tube gear is just tube gear and solid-state gear is solid-state gear. That doesn't really tell you anything about what it sounds like, how good it sounds, 
is it bright? Is it dark? Is it fat? Does it distort a lot or is it clean? You know what I mean? It doesn't tell you any of that just because it is tube or solid state. Okay, so don't assume it does. Number four, just learn your speakers and other monitoring myths. So I am very thankful that early on I had some mentors to tell me, you got to treat your room. It's really important. You know, you got to get good speakers and all this. And so I followed their advice a little bit blindly, but I didn't really understand why until many years later. You can even check early on our recording lounge episodes. I'm advocating for, you know, get bass traps, treat your room, but I didn't understand it nearly as well as I understand it now. I used to think like, oh, you just put a ton of bass traps in your room and you'll be good. I used to think, you know, you could learn a set of speakers and you could work with any set of speakers. It didn't really matter. You just needed to learn your set and you'd be fine. There are so many problems with this and so much of it comes from a misunderstanding of what the end goal is. And it also comes from a misunderstanding of speaker technology and, you know, that speakers are not just a frequency response. And understanding also, like we talked about on our microphone episodes, that frequency response graphs are vastly smoothed and inaccurate, what they publish and give to us. And that's frustrating, right? You can see like, oh, look how flat these are. And you realize, oh, there's tons of distortion all over the place and they say they're flat but they don't sound flat they sound harsh or they sound muddy or they sound you know whatever or they're not punchy or you know it doesn't tell you anything about transient response it doesn't tell you anything about phase it doesn't tell you anything about any of that like they could have distortion and phase smearing all over it but the frequency response is apparently relatively flat you know so there are tons of problems with that and I just I didn't understand it and I know a lot of people who still confuse it and they think that you can just buy a $400 set of speakers and learn it and and really get somewhere and that you're hearing something accurately because you learned it. I mean, it's it's kind of a faulty premise in general, like about learning anything like, oh, you learn something and therefore it's, you know, because you can learn bad information, right? Like that's kind of what this whole episode is about. And so you can look at a graph of your, you know, cheap studio monitors and say it's flat and say, well, See, peace of mind, they're flat. But you then realize later, oh, that's smooth to one-third of an octave, and our hearing is better than that. <laughs> uh, so, you know, so much of it comes back to understanding the goal, and the goal for a control room, at least, is a linear response with good phase, good transient response, good even decay times, um, again, smooth frequency response, trying to get it as accurate as possible. And also a good, a good imaging, you know, uh, not, not too wide, not too narrow, uh, accurate depictions of depth and height and width when you're listening to your music, all of that. And that is not something that's easily tackleable by just throwing up foam or throwing up even real bass traps in your room. It's not that simple. Every room is going to be a little bit different. They're going to require different things, different types of treatments. You know, if your room has a big buildup at 150 hertz, I might suggest different treatments than if your room had a big buildup at 80 hertz or if your room had a big buildup at 300 hertz or 40 hertz. They might all be slightly different variations. And that's something I didn't understand early on. And when I built this studio... 
I got really, really into acoustics during that process because I was like, well, I can't afford to hire a studio designer. I did pay some people for some consulting, but I couldn't really hire someone to actually design it from scratch. So I had to learn a lot about it. And I spent a year, maybe two, learning a ton about acoustics and having phone conversations and interviewing people. And, you know, it was a long process. And even still, my first year here, I spent so much of that first year or two experimenting and testing and trying different things with my speakers and trying different treatments and trying to get actual real results that I could prove and say, this is definitively better. I don't care what it looks like or, you know, oh, my speakers, they seem too far away from me or they seem too close or they, you know, whatever it may be. Um, again, there's so many monitoring myths we've talked about. Another one being like, oh, you shouldn't put your speakers close to the front wall. I mean, why? Why not? I, I understand the argument if it's a rear-ported speaker and you can actually get some loading and some weird things and you you could, in theory, damage your woofers, the, the ports for them to work correctly. They, you know, they need air behind them, but not that much. I mean, just enough to get the air out six inches, 10 inches a foot, something. You know what I mean? Like, and people will say things like, oh, you got you can't put your speakers closer than a foot to the front wall. That's wrong. And it's just not true. It's like, man, do you know what the end goal is? Do you know what the end result is? And how do you get there? And for every room, it's going to be a little bit different. The same thing goes for when you're dealing with people in one-room studios. Those types of treatments might be very different from the types of treatments in a control room, live room, you know, separate room situation. And you just can't take anything as like, this is true all the time in acoustics. It really does depend. I mean, that's kind of a recurring theme in the audio world in general is it depends. And, you know, me and my audio friends laugh about it because that's kind of the answer you can give for anything because it kind of does. It does depend. It depends on the situation. It's hard to really say this is the best mic for blah, blah, blah. This is the best guitar for this sound. This is the best... It, it, there's really no hard truths when it comes to that sort of thing. It depends. So when it comes to the monitoring myth, uh, it's it's really not something I advise is just trying to learn your speakers, like getting something cheap and just trying to learn it. Like better speakers present more accurate frequency responses, better phase responses, better transient responses, less distortion. Like the list goes on and on. You don't want to teach yourself something incorrect. That's part of the whole thing here is that if you learn how stuff sounds in an inaccurate room with inaccurate speakers, whenever you go to a different room or get a different set of speakers, you won't know that thing anymore. You won't necessarily know what to do. And because we're habitual types of beings that, you know, we get into things, we, we start understanding like, oh, well, I generally have to add 7K on my snare or whatever because I like it or I add this on my kick drums. Well, if you go to a new room or you're using headphones or you're, you know, checking mixes on the car, everything's different, right? And my gosh, the number of hours and and the, the amount of stress I have reduced in my life from getting my monitoring really good. I mean, I don't have to check mixes in the car. I don't have to check mixes on headphones or, or on the phone. I mean, I still do sometimes, but I don't have to. I don't have to guess are my monitors lying to me i'm very confident that what i'm hearing out of the monitors is what clients will hear and i'm very confident in you know when i put up a mic on something that's what it sounds like that's what i'm actually getting recorded and i i can't 
put a price on that peace of mind to me. I mean, it's, it's arguably the most important thing. Yeah. Uh, be very careful about those types of statements. Be very careful about like, just learn your speakers or, you know, these sort of definitive, uh, statements about acoustics or about monitoring that there's really no backing for. Number five, there's nothing wrong with digital recording. So this one's going to maybe strike a nerve a little bit because I wouldn't say that there's something is wrong with digital recording, but there's something ironically inefficient about digital recording that goes contrary to the records we have grown up hearing. So what I mean by that is for my entire life, I grew up listening to records uh, recorded in big studios with nice analog gear, usually to analog tape or some combination of tape and then transferred into digital, you know, and that's the sound, right? Like those are the sounds we grew up hearing and like it or not, the things that we consider to be, you know, good tones or whatever are generally just things that we like. There's not, again, there's not a hard truth. Like this is a good guitar tone. This is a bad one. You know, I don't really like say Dimebag Daryl's tone, but I know a lot of people who do. I don't always like John Mayer's tone, but a lot of times I do. I don't always like the Foo Fighters guitar sounds, but a lot of times I love them. It just depends on the song, the recording, who, who mixed it, who engineered it, you know, all these things, right? But these sounds that we grew up listening to, many of them were recorded with a lot of analog gear in nice studios. And the biggest thing with digital is not that it necessarily added something, but that it didn't add anything. And so it creates this weird inefficiency where we now have to think about gain staging and the chain and how to get things to sound like we hear them in our heads, like the things we grew up hearing. How can we do that? Well, in the digital domain, it's kind of inefficient because like, if you really wanted to simulate an analog chain start to finish where you recorded an electric guitar with a tube amp into a microphone, into a Neve preamp, into a tape machine, out of that tape machine, into a console for mixing and into another tape machine for the mix and then into another tape machine for the master. I mean, we're talking about like five to 10 stages of subtle saturation at various points in the process. And in the analog domain, it just did this stuff without us thinking about it. That was just the sound. In fact, you can read old interviews with producers who talk about compression a lot of times as a way to get more attack because all the saturation stages would kind of smooth over those attacks and you could use compression to get some snap back in your snare. But if we record a snare straight to digital and put a compressor on it, it sounds terrible. Usually sounds terrible because there's zero saturation going on and we're just accentuating an already incredibly, incredibly dynamic uh, snare transient versus recording a snare into an analog pre with a bunch of transformers in it and saturating that and running that into... Because again, with, with analog gear, you had to run it at a certain level of hotness or a certain level of gain to get good signal-to-noise ratio. Same thing with tape. And you'd run the signal pretty hot into the tape machine so that noise wouldn't be as big of a problem. But when you ran it a little bit hot into the tape machine, uh, you got a little more saturation. And, you know, hence the problem that we're in. So I used to think that, you know, oh, there's nothing wrong with digital. It can be just as good, blah, blah, blah. And then I 
pretty quickly realized within a number of, you know, maybe three years of recording, I was like, oh, I guess we do need saturation in some form because, you know, it, that's what the analog stuff had and that's the stuff that I liked. And then over time, I have learned more and more and more about that process and realized, man, there are a lot of stages that in the digital domain are hard to emulate and we have to consciously think about them. And that's one reason I'm, I'm really fascinated by things like Harrison mix bus. I haven't used it myself, but the idea of it, including that stuff, just, you know, integrated in the program on every channel strip is really cool. And I think, uh, the new UAD Luna has something like that as well. But even still, uh, my whole point in this is that it is a problem, like to get the sounds that I grew up hearing, to get the sounds that are in my head, um, that generally requires analog gear or at least a slight emulation of an analog signal path. Um, and of course, again, it always depends on the sound you're recording. It depends on how the player plays. It depends on, you know, if you want a bigger, fatter, less sharp snare sound, you can also tune the snare down lower and put towels on it. You know what I mean? Like there are ways to reduce transients that are not just saturation. We can do it in real time. You know, you can play an instrument differently. If you tune a kick drum more open, for example, if you tune a kick drum or a tom uh, with very little dampening and you tune it more open, you will, by definition, increase your sustain and by you know contrast your transient is not as pokey because you have this big sustain behind it i mean there are lots of ways that we can modify the envelope but in the digital domain you just have to think about it more and you you have to really consider gain staging and consider where things are in the chain and where saturation goes and do you add any on the way in or do you record stuff clean do you use compression on the way in or do you record it dry? There are so many factors. And it honestly, the biggest thing about this is that it's just an annoyance. It's just, it's not super efficient to me to have to think about that in different stages. And okay, where am I going to put this plug in? And should I blend it in parallel? Should I, you know, all these things. So the whole moral of this one is I used to think it was cut and dry. Like, oh, digital is fine. You know, people need to lighten up on it. Uh, it can sound good. And and on paper, it's pure. It's it's less distortion. It's more real. It should sound more real, right? Should sound more pure and perfect. Well, not necessarily. I mean, again, what we grew up listening to, that is not digital, like uh, at least for, for many of us. And so a lot of times that sound that we hear in our heads is not a digital one. And so it makes it really tough. Number six, live room misconceptions. So... Another acoustics-related one, you know, I used to think a lot of things about live rooms. Again, before I had my own purpose-built, dedicated live room with high ceilings and all this, I, I had just these misconceptions, these beliefs about, you know, you can record in a small room or in a booth sounds better for this, a booth sounds better for vocals, or this room sounds better for that. Um, things like, I used to think that tons of treatment was good in a live room because I remember reading about how some engineers are like, oh, they didn't call it live room because it was uh, had a lot of decay. They called it live room because that's where the live instrumentalists were. That's where the live music was happening. And then other people were like, no, that's that's total BS. That's not why they called it that. And then I used to think that, uh, you know, live rooms were supposed to be really dark and, f and, and fat sounding. And then I thought they were supposed to be bright. And then I thought they were supposed to have a lot of mids. I used to think 
they needed a lot of decay to sound good. And then I thought, no, maybe they need to be real tight and I'll add reverb. And just over the years, I've gone through all these things. I also used to think that bigger live rooms, like the bigger you could get, the better it would sound, basically. Like the bigger, the better. But that's also not true. One of the things I learned working at a commercial studio for a short time was that room was really large. And when you have a room that large, when you start compressing room mics and stuff, it's so large that it doesn't quite do the same thing that a smaller room does when it kind of folds in on itself and you hear that room kind of like distort and sound really cool. Uh, if the room is too big, you don't really get that. The other problem is when you have a room that's too big, you can have just a ton of decay. And in order to tame that decay, you got to put so much treatment up. I mean, it's the whole thing is this. I tend to look at live rooms now. I've used this analogy, I think, on the podcast before, but if not, it's whatever. I look at live rooms like a big block of marble, okay? And again, you have to ask yourself, what is the goal? What am I? What types of things am I recording in here? Does it need to sound good on drums or piano or acoustic instruments or vocals or whatever? And you start off with this big block of marble, right? That's like your empty room, tons of decay, tons of reflections. You got no treatment in there, no rugs, nothing. And you start chipping away at it. You start chipping away the things that are not conducive, right? Like, let's say you have a room that empty, uh, has a really long, like, three-second decay time. It's like, all right, that's not going to work. I'm not recording classical music, whatever. I need it to be a reasonable length so I can record lots of things in here. So you chip away the big pieces, right? You start making your sculpture. And then eventually you start saying, okay... Uh, now it sounds good on drums, but it's a little bit too lively still for vocals. So maybe you consider building a, a booth or a mobile thing where you can move around some gobos. Maybe that doesn't quite help it enough. And then over time you audit your music and you think, ah, maybe that's a little bit murky in the low mids. Maybe I need to add some treatment there. And you start refining that again, always chipping away at that sculpture and eventually, in theory, you're left with this thing that looks like and sounds like, you know, I'm mixing the metaphor here, but it, it looks like what you wanted. And it and it makes the sounds that you need. There's uh, there been a lot of research in the acoustics world about how big a room should be and how big it, how long its decay should be for given types of source material, for classical music, for pop music, for voiceover all these things. There's been a lot of research. You can look it up and see graphs. And um, I would say for most studio work, the generally accepted kind of decay times range from about 200 milliseconds to a second and a half, maybe for a, for a live room. So that's, of course, a really big range. 200 milliseconds is really tight. That's basically like a booth. And a second and a half is pretty long. I mean, that's that's a long time in, in music terms, you know. Um, so there's a pretty wide range there and part of it depends on how big your room is. And, and again, a lot of that research is done on the premise of, well, you're going to have to reduce this room with treatment, uh, and you're going to have to start making your sculpture so that it sounds good. And the amount of treatment it will take to make it sound good might be enough to make your decay too short. Right. There's that balance I have found over the years that there's a balance of, well, the room might sound a little better with more treatment 
or a little bit tighter in the low end or whatever, but then the decay is too short. So it's about balancing those two. And of course, if you can build a live room from scratch and and really know what you're doing in that regard, you can make a room that sounds exactly as you want it to sound and has the decay pretty much exactly how you want it to be. But if you're treating an existing room, that's a different story. So all I'm getting at here is I used to think that it was a lot simpler than it is. Live rooms are really tough because there's not a very clear universal goal like there is with control rooms, which is generally, you know, like I said, good, good accuracy, good imaging, good phase, good, you know, low distortion, all the above. With a live room, it depends on the application. It depends on the types of things you're recording. Um, it depends on the type of music you work with or the type of voiceover you work with. Or do you work with orchestral instruments? Do you work with, you know, and one of the issues I find here is that people think that, oh, well, this room, if I treat it right, it can sound good for anything. And that's just not the case. Like, there are limits to what a room can sound good on. Like, for example, I have almost never heard great drum recordings done in a tiny little dead drum booth. They just don't sound like, they don't sound right to me. Um, and a lot of times vocals, it kind of doesn't matter whether you're in a big room or a small room. Guitars, it kind of depends, but like a lot of acoustic instruments are very interactive with the room. Stringed instruments, for example, like their natural habitat is more like a stage or, or a scoring stage or a larger room. That's just what sounds right. Same with choir or, you know, large group vocals. It just sounds more correct in a larger room. And like trying to get a big gang vocal sound in a booth, it's really hard. It's really hard to do. Um, it's much easier and makes way more sense and sounds more natural and as you expect it if you have a group of people in a big room and you mic them from far away and you have them you know do their gang vocals just like with violin or strings like you gotta have some room decay in there for it to sound right like recording cello in a booth or recording piano in a tiny little dead carpeted room it just doesn't always work now again it might it might work depending on your situation but there are limits. You know, you can't just make a room sound perfect for everything. Um, that's why these major studios like Blackbird, things like that, have different live rooms. They have booths. They have different areas. They have different parts of the room that sound better for the piano over here and the drums over here. And it's just the way it is. There are, there are limits, you know. So don't assume that a live room is just one way, that there's one goal, that there's one singular thing. And this is how you treat it, and this is how you make it work, and it really, really does depend. Number seven, compression meters are telling you the truth. This was a hard one for me to break because of the way that you you look at a meter and it tells you something in the digital domain, and you just say, well, that's got to be it, right? And what I have found over the years is whether we're talking about plugins or analog gear or whatever— Specifically, when it comes to gain reduction meters, they're not always accurate, okay? Some of them are, in fact, wildly inaccurate, uh, like my gates or retro stay level. I mean, that's an incredibly inaccurate meter. It doesn't even remotely reflect reality. <laughs> uh, and there are some compressors that I have owned that, 
you can test it yourself and you can run a sine wave in there and you can say, oh, it's, you know, compressing this much. So it should be this much quieter. You can do the math. It's not hard math. And then you realize, oh, that's not what's happening at all. It's completely wrong. So, yeah, it can be very frustrating when you're looking at a compressor and it appears as though it's compressing, you know, either a little bit, like one or two dB, but it's actually it actually sounds pretty, you know, colored. Or the other way, it shows it's compressing 10 dB or whatever, and you're like, man, it just doesn't even sound that compressed. But your brain will tell you, like, oh, that's too much compression, right? The moral of the story here is don't put too much stock in what the meters show you on a compressor or really on any piece of gear, especially in the analog domain. Just listen to how it sounds. Use the meters as a general guide and listen to how it sounds. That's really all that matters anyway. Number eight, minimal miking sounds better. So I don't know exactly where this comes from. I have a hunch that it has something to do with people looking at certain examples of drum miking or of whatever, like Led Zeppelin, and they say, oh, John Bonham's drums record, you know, they recorded with two mics, and they, he was in a castle, and there was this high ceiling. And it's like, yes, but not every Led Zeppelin song was recorded that way, you know? Like, just because When the Levee Breaks was done that way doesn't mean everyone was done that way. And people get this idea that, like, well, that's the greatest drum sound ever, so that's how, that's what real engineers do, is they use few mics, you know, and don't get me wrong. I love minimal miking. I think it's great, but in a very real sense, it just doesn't work all the time. A lot of players, if I'm being honest, are not good enough to make minimal miking work. They don't have good enough self-balance, especially drummers, when you're miking things minimally to balance and hit every drum exactly, you know, the same way every time. So that mic picks it up really evenly and it sounds good. The other thing is that just logistically, it doesn't allow for what clients have come to expect. You can get this sound with a three mic drum setup and you can think it sounds amazing. And then the, you know, like kick snare overhead, right? And then the clients are like, uh, can you turn up the toms? And it's like, no, I can't. And they're like, why not? So you have to do like weird automation on the overhead or, or whatever, and eventually you just cave and just add tom mics because it doesn't quite do it. And again, you might get that that overhead in a great position, but the drummer doesn't hit their toms hard enough. Like it would sound good if they hit their toms hard enough or if they had good sounding toms or whatever, but maybe they just don't understand that the balance is that critical. And so it's really frustrating, right? Like in many situations, minimal miking might sound better, but it's just not logistically, you know, it's not going to make sense. It's not going to work for what you need. Um, or the drummer, you know, plays their hi-hats too hard. So you got to have uh, individual mics and the toms and snare because you got to be able to control those. And as much as I would like to say that, you know, the phase problems when you have, you know, when you have fewer mics, you have fewer phase problems. That's a fact. But that doesn't always mean it sounds good just because the, you know, that's just one problem, right? That's just one thing. Like phase is just one aspect of a good drum sound. The others are like balance and tone and distortion and compression and all this. 
So don't get caught in the trap of thinking that like real engineers use as few mics as possible, that that's how the real guys, that's how the real pros do it. It's just not true. It's, it's anything from one mic to 30 mics on a drum kit. You know, it's whatever works, whatever you need. And many times I'm miking with 16 channels on drums, but I only use, you know, eight or 10 of them in the mix. I try the others. I see if it's cool. I try to blend them in. Maybe it's cool for a certain section or whatever, but I only need it for, you know, a bar or, or a couple bars, or maybe I don't need it at all. Another thing about this is like when you see people miking guitar amps with tons of microphones, don't just assume they're using all of them, right? They might have just done it as a shootout, put up a bunch of mics, listen back to them and really only keep one of them. Or maybe they're summing them all to one channel and just recording, you know, one channel into the DAW. Or maybe they're not really sure what they're doing and they're just experimenting, you know? I, I don't know. You can't assume much from just a photo. I mean, many times I find myself using multiple mics on things. Um, sometimes it's because I need options. Sometimes it's because I legitimately like the sound of those two things combined. Like, I almost can't survive without an inside and outside mic on a rock kick drum. It's just kind of part of essential, like it's essential to the sound to me. But if I'm doing a jazz drum sound, I don't need an inside kick mic. Half the time there are kick drums for jazz players. They don't even have a hole in the kick drum, so I don't need it. Um, on electric guitar, I very often use a 57 and a 121. Every now and then I'll use three mics, um, and every now and then I'll just use one. Again, it really does depend. Just don't assume that more mics is going to be better because more microphones will give you more phase problems. It will contribute to like decision overload. It will contribute to, you know, you make pushing things off till later. But don't then jump and say, well, therefore, minimal miking is better. That's not always true either, okay? It's kind of a flawed argument. And people make these types of arguments in all kinds of things, not just audio people, but even in politics, for example, you see someone with a position and someone presents an opposing view and they're like, oh, so you clearly believe the opposite of this. You're saying that's the solution is doing the opposite of what I'm telling you. And it's like, no, that's not it at all. Like, can we not have a moderate position on the matter? Um, you know, and of course there are certain things that no, it doesn't make sense to have a moderate position on. There are other things that it it's kind of the only answer is because it's not going to apply for every situation. You have to have something somewhere in the middle. It's going to make some people upset, some people not upset. Um, enough about that. My point is that you can't assume that tons of mics is better. You can't assume that as few mics as possible is better. You really just have to take it case by case. What do you need to get out of it? What logistical concerns do you have about the clients and what they're going to be asking for? What things do you need in the mix? What things do you know? And what things might you have to decide later? Like, for example, you might set up a handful of microphones on an acoustic guitar because you need a stereo acoustic for the intro. But then once the band comes in, you have a separate mono mic that you're using just for that when the guitar is with the band and you just mute the stereo mic, right? If you know the song well and you have a plan of attack for uh, the way you're going to sort of stage the production, you can set up lots of mics and say, I'm going to use this pair for this. I'm going to use this pair for that. I need to use this in the chorus, like these, these big room mics or whatever. I'm going to use that in the chorus. Um, and, 
and to me, there's nothing wrong with that, but with, with that sort of approach. To me, what would be worse uh, is, is setting up one mic and getting all hot and bothered and saying like, well, one mic is the way. That's how real engineers do it. With fewer phase problems. It sounds better. And that's, you know, they didn't use 20 mics back in the day for drums and, you know, Ringo sounded the best. And then just get into this sort of weird elitist mindset and then come mix time, you can't, you can't do what you need to do. Many times um, I have done that where I've mic'd up drums minimally and in the mix, the band complains about it. They thought it sounded awesome the day of, but in the band, you know, they're like, well, can we turn up the, the, the hi-hat? No, I can't. I don't have a hi-hat mic. Well, can you make it darker? And then you make it darker. And well, now the snare sounds dark. It's like, exactly. It has its, it has its downsides. Number nine, plugins are not as good as hardware. Now, this one is one of those sort of half-truths. I should have possibly phrased this, plugins won't ever be as good as hardware. Um, one really encouraging thing to me is that over the last decade, and you know, even 15 years, plugins have come a long, long way. When I first started, there were so few plugins that were even worth, I mean, they were just not that good. You know, they just didn't sound that good. Um, there were only a handful of companies making plugins, and most of them were very basic. Most of them were very, like, you know, basically like what comes in a DAW stock now. Very simple, very straightforward digital plugins without any analog character. And then when they started making, like, analog emulating plugins, they were pretty bad. They didn't sound anything like analog gear. And I had analog gear early on even, and I compared and I was like, gosh, this sounds so bad. And so you get a bad taste in your mouth with plugins. But man, they have come so far in the plugin domain and they've come so far in the digital world just in general. Like think about where you know, amp emulations were 10 years ago, 15 years ago. I mean, it's laughable compared to today. It's a joke how bad they sounded. And we we're like, people use this? People actually purchase this? It's terrible. And then you hear it today and you're like, oh my gosh, this is actually really convincing. And I assume 10 years from now, we're going to be listening back and saying like, man, I can't believe we thought that was close, you know? So I do think it's a tough battle. I do think it's a tough battle to make plugins sound like analog gear, but I can't really say in good conscience that plugins won't ever be as good as hardware. Theoretically, they could be better. Like what's stopping them from being better sounding than the hardware? You know, is there any mathematical proof that can say they can't be? Because what we call good is just what sounds good to us, not necessarily what the analog gear was, you know, like I, I don't doubt that eventually plugins will sound identical to the hardware and even phase cancel with the hardware and sound that realistic. But then what's next? Who's to say we can't design plugins that are analog based or analog inspired, but do things that we could never afford to do in the analog domain because they would cost, you know, the unit itself would cost $100,000 to make or whatever, you know, when processing in the computer gets that good, we could make that piece. We could make a certain type of guitar amp emulation or a compressor emulation that would just be ridiculously costly to do in real life, but we could do it in the digital domain. You see what I'm saying? Like we do have the theoretical option that plugins could one day sound cooler 
and more versatile and more insanely like over the top than any analog gear ever could. I don't know when that is. Maybe it's five years from now, 10, 20, 30, 100. I, I don't know. But I used to think like, oh, these plugins, they're just not good. They're never going to be as good. I don't think that's true anymore. I think plugins and digital stuff has come an incredibly long way. And I'm always excited to see new things that are being done. Just like our most recent episode talking about amazing digital plugins. Like that stuff blows my mind. Like some of the things that are being done now blows my mind. And, and like who cares if it doesn't sound like some piece of hardware. It does an amazing thing that makes my job better. And that's really cool. Number 10, mic preamps matter more than the microphone. Okay, this is a belief I held for a long time that, uh, and it made sense, right? Because if you have a crappy mic preamp and you use an SM57, you can say like, oh, that sounds pretty crappy. And then you plug that into like a real 1073 and it actually sounds really good. So your brain starts thinking, oh, wow, the preamp makes way bigger difference than the microphone. But in reality, I have found that is just not the case. Again, this is opinion. This is my own opinion. But I've not found a mic preamp that can be as drastically different as, say, the difference in a dynamic mic versus a ribbon mic or a condenser. I haven't found a, a mic preamp that makes that much of a difference in the signal. If you run sine sweeps or phase tests or distortion tests on microphone preamps, they're not doing as much as you think they are. They don't have these wild frequency curves like microphones can have. They don't have, like the difference in a AKG C12 and a Cascade Fathead is night and day. Those microphones sound completely different from each other. One is really fat and dark and kind of murky in the low mids. The other is really flat, but with a huge bright boost at the top. I mean, those mics could not sound more different from each other. And yes, there's a huge difference in price, but even if you get a $5,000 mic preamp, versus a $500 mic preamp, there's not a drastic change in the sound. I mean, yes, the $5,000 one sounds better, for sure, but there's not a drastic change. When you get, especially into the real budget stuff, like under $500 a channel, yeah, you're gonna deal with other issues like distortion not sounding very good, or noise, or bad phase response, or kind of wimpy low end, or or kind of smeared, phasey top end, or whatever. You get into nicer designs, you get better saturation sounds, uh, you get more punch, more transient, better transient response, better phase response, uh, less low end and high end roll off, you know, just overall a more realistic representation. So like the preamps do make a difference, but I just don't think they make more of a difference than the microphone itself. Now, if you're comparing, say, condenser mic A versus condenser mic B that are in the same price range and both based on a 67 capsule and a 67 circuit, no, there's not that much difference between them. There probably won't be a huge change. But mic preamps, people talk about mic preamps like they're the, you know, they, they'll uncover the veil. I'm sure I have even talked about it like that to some point. Like they can make a microphone come alive. Like you'd never heard it before. And, you know, maybe on certain microphones, but I mean, I've got a lot of preamps from a lot of different manufacturers. I've got tube preamps and solid state preamps. I've got, you know, stuff from BAE and from Mercury and from API and from Millennia. I've got all kinds of different preamps and they all work. They all sound fine. 
I have compared them with each other many times. They all have slightly different characters. Yes, they all have slightly different types of distortion or types of uh, punch. Some of them are, you know, more punchy than others. And but it's not like a night and day change between them. It's like, oh, that you know, that sounds different. It's a little little cleaner or a little punchier or whatever. But the difference between you know two mics can be so vast, or the difference between moving a microphone from one inch away to 12 inches away can be huge, right? So these days, I'm of the belief that the microphone and the mic position makes way more a difference than a mic preamp ever will. And that opinion might change in the future, but that's how it is today. Number 11, guitar speaker cabinets all sound pretty similar. And as long as you get a good speaker, you should be fine and be able to record guitar sounds. Stop complaining. Okay, this is a belief that I held for a while, and it's just not true. It really isn't true. Um, the way that a speaker sounds uh, can drastically impact the mid-range and the highs, specifically on a guitar sound. Drastically. I mean, it can be night and day difference, like as, as dramatic as a ribbon to a condenser or whatever. And the cabinet itself, whether it's a 112 or 212 or open back or closed back or any of that, can have a huge difference on the mid-range and the low end, I find. The speaker will have a difference on the low end, but it's not as drastic as what it will do on the mids and highs. The cabinet, I think, is responsible a lot for how the low end responds. I remember learning this early on. It was probably my third or fourth year of recording, and I started working with one of my first uh, metal bands that I've ever worked with. And they insisted on bringing their, you know, 100-watt amps and their 412 cabinets. And I was like, oh, my gosh, this is going to be so loud. I was in an upstairs bedroom studio at the time. And I was like, dude, you're going to lug your huge amps all the way up here. And when I heard it, though, when I heard it in person for myself and I compared the sound of a 212 open back cabinet or a whatever and a lower wattage amp with pedals versus a 100-watt amp into a 412, it was like... I get it now. Like, I get why Angus Young still uses 100-watt Marshalls and 412 cabinets. I get why, you know, Metallica uses these big... You know, I get why these bands use these things because in some way, that's the only way to really get the sound. And my life was changed that day because I was like, man, 412 cabinets have such a huge difference in sound between like that and a 112 open it's it's a drastically different sound even with the same speakers okay the cabinet makes a big difference and you can test it yourself you know get a couple of vintage 30s and try it in a 112 and then try it in a closed 412 and it's a drastically different sound it's really kind of mind-boggling the mid-range and the lows especially will sound drastically different and even between cabinets, you know, like oversized 412 cabinets versus kind of smaller, more compact 412s, it's a similar sound, but it's still different, even with the same speakers. And speakers themselves, you know, from older versions to newer versions, like the old greenbacks versus what they had in the 70s and 80s and then the 90s and greenbacks today, that the 20-watt greenbacks, the 25-watt greenbacks, the, the Heritage series, like... All of these things when it comes to guitar speakers, like they sound different and you can, it's, it's not like golden ear stuff. Like you can go to YouTube and look up speaker shootouts and some of them sound like drastically different between them, even if they're the same model, just from a different year. A lot of that has to do with just like 
the paper that they use in the cones and the type of magnets they use and the type of materials they use and the construction techniques. And, you know, it's still a very like basic technology that we're using for guitar speakers. And I think that makes it difficult because like in the hi-fi world, we've come leaps and bounds where we, from where we used to be with like good, you know, professional speakers for critical listening. But for guitar speakers, we're still making speakers in like the old way, you know, with paper cones and, you know, sometimes a hemp cone or other things. But, you know, we're kind of making them in these very sort of primitive fashions. Right. And but that's what sounds right to us. Again, it's kind of like some of these others we've talked about with how we grew up hearing certain sounds. So the moral of this one is basically you really got to compare different speakers and different types, low wattage speakers, high wattage speakers. You really got to compare different cabinets. You know, my favorite cabinets that I have in the studio, uh, there are three in particular. I have two 212s that I really love. One is closed and one is open. And I have a 412 that I really love. And the 412 has uh, vintage 30s in it. And two of those are vintage, vintage 30s. So they're from the 80s or, or late 80s, early 90s. So they're really broken in. Um, and then I have two newer ones. And then in my 212 closed cabinet, I have a warehouse veteran 30 and a warehouse retro 30 in the closed cabinet. And in the open 212, I have a Celestian Gold and a Celestian 65 watt uh, white label speaker. Uh, and those three cabinets probably get the most use. I also have a Marshall 412 with greenbacks, and that gets use. And I have a 112 with a cream back, and I have a man, I have a Another two, I have two 212s up in my attic that I use for ISO cabinets. I've got a lot of cabinets, guys. I, <laughs> I really do. I've got like 10 or 12 speaker cabinets, and they all sound different, and I can prove it. Like, I could go through and record every single speaker with the exact same guitar through the same amp, through the same settings and everything, and every single speaker sounds different, and every single cabinet sounds different. So just realize that. It, they are different, and it does make a difference. Number 12, more layers equals better. Okay, this is something I still struggle with to this day. A lot of the music that I grew up listening to, a lot of the stuff that I love is pretty heavily layered. Some of my favorite bands use like really beautiful, like complex layered productions that are like a wall of sound. And it sounds amazing. It's really big and full. But there's a big downside to that, which is the more layers you have, the more dense the mix gets, the harder it is to hear individual things, the harder it is to pick out the, the subtleties or the nuance in what you're doing. And so more layers sometimes can be the absolute opposite thing that you should be doing, right? Uh, I've struggled with it my whole career. And sometimes when you, that's the other problem is when you do layers, you layer guitar sounds and a client hears it and they're like, oh my gosh, it sounds huge, more, it must have more. And then they hear keys sounds and you start layering those and they're like, oh, that sounds huge. Let's make it bigger and bigger. And they want to present this thing. It's kind of like, you know, imagine you're doing a show, like a stage setup, and you've got an infinite budget and the pyro guy shows you fireworks. I mean, and you're going to be like, yes, I want more. And then there's flames and you're like, yes. And then the lighting guy's like, check out these lasers. And you're like, yes. And you're just trying to create this like awesome experience 
But like in real time in the, in the stage, it's like, dude, this is too much. This is just like, I can't even concentrate on anything. There's so much distracting stuff going on. Right. Just like making movies or whatever. Like if you just go with all, like, let's go big the whole time. It's just exhausting, you know? Uh, so I have learned the power of minimalism when it comes to recording songs and how sometimes it's not necessarily about being minimal. It's that the fewer things you have, the bigger you can make each one sound, right? I've used the metaphor before of like a box, like say you're moving and you got to pack a bunch of things into a box. Well, the box size doesn't change, but you can pack 10 small things in there, like maybe some books, or you can pack one or two big things, or you can pack one big thing and few small things. And to me, that's how I look at mixing in terms of space, right? Like the more things that you're putting in that box, the smaller each one has to be. And that's just kind of a fact of life. Like your kick drum can't be really boomy and long if, if, if you want to have a big bass sound as well. And if you want to have a big fat guitar sound and a big fat, you know, keyboard sound and like you just won't hear it. You just won't hear it. Masking is very real and there are limits to what can be reproduced through a speaker. You know, I've worked with bands on this before. One of the biggest struggles I find is with toms, okay? People will write songs that have like a big tom beat, right? Like boom, boom, ga, boom, 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 ga, right? This big sort of heavy tom beat. And then they'll want heavy fuzz guitars and heavy bass and heavy this and heavy that. And then by the end of it, they're like, how come I can't hear the toms? Or how come the toms sound small? And it's like, well, because everything is down, playing down in that same region Everything is big and it, and it's like, what's your priority? What do you want the toms to sound big or do you want the bass to sound big or do you want them both to sound big? And it's like, if you want both of those to sound big, you might have to make some compromises on the tone of one or the other because you got to be able to hear them both when they're playing in the same range. You know what I mean? So like you might have to make the bass more distorted and not necessarily super fat, but give the illusion that it's fat, you know, by adding some fuzz or some distortion. And then good luck with guitars, you know what I mean? Like adding that and keys. And so again, more is not always better. Sometimes more is better. Sometimes that's the sound, that big wall of sound in your face, massive layered pop banger hit, right? Like Imagine Dragons or a lot of like a lot of modern worship music is really heavily layered. A lot of modern country music is pretty heavily layered. Uh, a lot of modern pop music is really heavily layered, but not always. There's been a trend in the last five, 10 years of making pop stuff more minimal where it's like a, a beat, like think Billie Eilish, like a lot of her stuff is very minimal. It's like a beat, a bass, her vocal, and like a little like whoop whoop in the background, <laughs> like pretty minimalist thing. Right. And I think people have learned, and I have learned, that if you just try to keep it as minimal as possible while still accomplishing the bigness that you want, it goes a long way to helping increase clarity and apparent size of each part, and you don't have to make everything, you know, high-pass everything and make everything smaller and fit in the mix. And Anyway, so more is not always better, and, you know, I, I could add a second one on this list that minimalism is not always better, Right. But when it is, it's it's a great thing. Number 13, gain staging in the box. Now, I have entire episodes about this. I talk about this on the book. I'm not saying that this is not important. 
But I used to think that the gain staging was like absolutely critical. Like you, you can't get a good mix if you don't do it perfectly every time. And what I learned over time was if you just get in the habit of gain staging things well while recording and finding that sweet spot in the level where you don't, you know, it's not too hot, it's not too quiet, you're not pushing your converters like up to zero, but you're also not recording with weak levels and you just get in good habits, you don't have to worry about gain staging in the box as much because you've kind of set yourself up for success. You have a consistent target level uh, where you try to get things around the same peak or RMS value while recording, and you don't have to go through every single track and be so exacting, like, oh, no, this one's hitting at negative 16, and this one's hitting at negative 15, this one's negative 17. My mix is not going to be good unless they're all hitting at a consistent level. That was never my intention, but I used to kind of think that, if I'm really thinking back, that, like, it was this absolute critical thing. And it, while it is important, again, this is like a half-truth, it's like, it is important. You should employ good gain-staging practices, and you don't want your plugins to be distorting all the time, and you don't want to be pushing your master bus where the only time it won't clip is if you put a limiter on it. Like, that's just basic audio stuff, but... My point is, if you employ good habits in your tracking stage and you employ good habits and sort of targets in your mixing phase, you don't have to worry so much about gain staging. Like, you don't have to be super, super crazy anal about it and make sure every single thing is perfect. Like, you know, like I remember thinking about on an 1176, like, okay, I'm compressing like 6 or 7 dB. But like these these numbers aren't necessarily that accurate. When I move the when I move the knob, it's not exactly seven dB, and I'd have to sit there. And I was just like thinking about the numbers too much, the literal. And again, later when you learn like, oh, this gain reduction meter might not even be accurate, then it's really like, oh, well, <laughs> does it really matter that I gain staged? You know, I made did the makeup gain exactly right? It's like not really. Just bypass the plugin turn the plugin on and try to level match it relatively similarly, you know, because there will be gain reduction when you compress. That's what it's doing. So you got to use the makeup gain to help it be a little bit more level matched. And same with EQ. If you do a bunch of EQ on something, you might have to like turn up or down the output of it to compensate. But I just don't stress about that as much as I used to because I've made good habits. Anyway, my whole point in just bringing that up is like, I hope you don't stress about it and get so caught up in reading the numbers exactly like, oh, everything has to be gain staged to this exact, you know, 0.1 decibel and then it'll be right. You know, it's just, it's not that critical. Number 14, converters make a big difference. Now, this is another one that's highly contested, but I believe in the year 2020, converters don't make that much of a difference. Yes, if you're comparing your cheapest bargain basement, again, people go too far with this stuff. They're like, so you're saying that a that a benchmark converter is the same as a $10 cheapo from, you know, China, whatever. No, that's not what I'm saying. I'm not saying that the extreme ends of the argument don't sound any different from each other. I'm saying that a $1,000 converter versus a $1,500 converter versus a $2,000 converter they don't sound that different from each other anymore. Now, I do believe they used to. I've experienced it. I have recorded proof of it where I used to have old, you know, uh, PreSonus this or that or Behringer or M-Audio or, you know, DigiDesign, you know, before they went to Avid. 
and you can compare different interfaces and converters, and there was a drastic difference between them. It was like, man, this one sounds dull. This one does not. Like, it's noticeable. It sounds like night and day. But now, I mean, I've compared my Lynx interface to Apogee stuff and to Focusrite stuff and to a lot of cheaper stuff, and I've run sign sweeps on this stuff, and it's like the digital stuff is advancing so much that even like your basic Focusrite interface is miles above what it was 15 years ago. Miles above. And what we pay $3,000 for today for like a, you know, mid-high-end interface wouldn't have even been, like that is, that was, that would have been thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars in the early 2000s. I mean, to get that level of quality. It's just not as big of a concern anymore. And I used to really be in team converter, like, oh, it makes such a big difference, you know, in terms of clarity and all this. Now it just doesn't. It doesn't make as much of a difference, which is great, because that means that if someone gets an interface for a reasonably cheap price, they can get a pretty solid sound without much coloration, without having to spend $3,000. Now, I will say a lot of the preamps that come on interfaces are still crappy. Not all of them, but... They have improved for sure, but they're still not my first choice. I still do prefer my outboard preamps basically every time, um, even over the Universal Audio preamps, over the Apogee preamps. I mean, they just don't sound that good to me. They sound okay, right? Like, and of course, with the Universal Audio, you have the the modeling, and that's, that helps. But still, it's a, uh, we still have a long way to go, I think, on onboard preamps. And I, I never buy interfaces with... With onboard preamps, I always get interfaces that are just straight line line ins, and I because I have a bunch of outboard preamps, I don't need extras. But my gosh, I remember one of the most popular interfaces back early on when I was starting was the PreSonus FirePod, like that was what every home studio had, and I'm sure I even mention it on the uh, on the early episodes of the podcast. I mean, that was ten years ago or eleven years ago, and. I mean, that was super common to have around and compared to stuff today on interface. I mean, that was a joke. It was pathetic for how, for how far we've come. So, um, I really do believe that converters just aren't a huge part of the equation anymore. Number 15, drum samples are bad. All right. So this one is pretty easy to harp on because yes, if you're using bad samples, if you're using a terrible drummer, if you're using... You know, if your actual drum recordings aren't that good, drum samples will sound fake or they, they'll make it sound really phony and plasticky and terrible and all this. However, I have learned over the years, especially I would say once I got my new studio, working with better drummers and things like that, blending in samples is like, oh, wow, now I can do something that actually sounds better than using a reverb because it's actually a recording of a real snare in a room as opposed to putting a fake reverb on a snare mic, which is not actually, doesn't sound real. You know what I mean? So in a way, samples in certain situations can sound more real than using reverb or than using a mic in a different place or whatever. But the key is you've got to have great sounding samples. You got to know how to use them. You got to know what parts of the sample to use. Do you use the close mics or do you use the room mics? You got to know how much to blend in. You got to have a drummer that records well enough where the samples blend well with the drummer. 
you've got to have decent drum sounds to begin with. Like people who think you can just record crappy, crappy drum sounds and then blend in amazing samples and it's all going to sound perfectly natural and real. It's just doesn't really, it's not really how it works. But blending in samples for the purpose of tonal shaping and exploration and enhancing things that, that, they, that they don't necessarily have, that's a really great thing. And I love to do it. Uh, a great example of that is like if I want a big, long kick drum sound, I have a 28-inch bass drum. But a lot of drummers don't like to play it because it's so large, you have to put your rack tom really far over to the left. And so sometimes what we'll do is we'll just record with a 24 and I'll bring in samples of a bigger drum and that way they can get the performance that they want and I get a relatively big kick drum sound, but then I can blend in a sample of a much larger bass drum that would have made them uncomfortable to play. So that's a really cool thing. Again, you can, you can kind of get the best of both worlds and get a great performance out of a drummer and then be able to blend in the sound that you really need. The other thing is you got to be sure that the drums you're blending them with are tuned in a similar region and in a similar way. Like if you're wanting a big fat snare drum sound, you can't just record a high pitched ringy snare drum and replace it with a big fat dead snare drum. It just doesn't work like that. Like, because the high pitch ringy snare drum is in your overhead mics and it's in your room mics, it's in your Tom mics and all of that. So you have to try to get as close as you can. And I find that when I'm like 85, 90% there uh, on the on the live drum sound, the samples work effortlessly. You blend them in and it's like, yep, that helped. But if I'm, you know, if my drum sound is kind of crappy, the samples don't blend as well. It's just how it is. Like if you've got a drummer who doesn't really hit that well or doesn't really balance themselves that well, they don't know how to get a good snare sound or they hit weird or, you know, whatever. Samples are really tough to blend in. And I try not to replace, to this day, I still try not to replace unless I really just have to. I actually had to do it maybe six months ago. I was working on a track and the drummer, I don't know what was up with his kick drum, but it just sounded so weird in the mix. Like it just didn't work. I don't remember if it was like, I tried to EQ it and it just wouldn't fit in the track uh, when all was said and done, you know, after we had recorded bass and guitars and keys and all that, it just sounded awful. And that was the first kick drum I think I've fully replaced in a long time. And it came out fine, you know? I didn't even have to use a sample on the snare, but I fully replaced the kick drum. So my whole point in saying this is samples are a creative tool. Use them if they help your sounds. Use them to your advantage. Don't get on your high horse about it and say, oh, it's not real, it's not pure, it's not... You know, neither is editing, neither is tuning, neither is a, a lot of these things, right? But it's all for the for the common good, right? Like we're trying to make a great sounding record. Some things we just don't that don't make sense to try to do real time, like to to record that big twenty eight inch bass drum, or you know, to have a drummer play in a cavern or something like that. Like we just can't do that. So adding a sample is oddly enough, I think you could argue more real than adding a synthetic reverb that's using math to try to recreate space instead of just playing back a recording done in a real space. Because there were so many things on this list, I decided to split this into two episodes when I got to number 15 and realized I'd already been uh, recording for over an hour. So uh, make sure to check out part two of this episode where I go over some more beliefs that I used to have 
that I have since changed my mind or misconceptions or things like that. Hope you've enjoyed this episode. I hope it's given you some things to consider and maybe question some of your own beliefs and what you think about them and what beliefs of yours have changed. Send me an email if you have any questions, comments, or concerns, recordingloungepodcast at gmail.com. Make sure to check out the YouTube and our website, recordingloungepodcast.com, and I'll talk to you guys next time.